Well, today is a day that we have been looking forward to and is a long time coming. If uh, you've been a part of Sherwood Oaks for a while, our guest speaker today needs no introduction. But if you are new with us over the last 15 months or so, Tom Ellsworth uh, was the lead minister of Sherwood Oaks Christian Church for nearly 40 years. He and his wife Elsie served this church family in our community so incredibly well, and we are thankful for them. Uh, in August of 2020, Tom entered into retirement, retooling, uh, and I think has been as busy as, as ever. And to kind of catch us up on what he's been up to and where he's been over the last 15 months, uh, we put together this uh, little video. Let's, let's check it out. Elsie and I have had a good first year of retirement. We'd been retired for a month when Nashville Christian Church called and asked if I would serve as an interim minister uh, in Nashville, which we answered that call. Th that's Nashville, Indiana, and we had a wonderful time. It's a wonderful congregation, and we were there about nine months. And then on August uh, the 1st, I started another interim ministry at Central Christian Church in Seymour. I've also uh, been serving with Bob Russell uh, this fall and going into the spring. When Bob retired from the uh, Southeast Christian Church in Louisville, Kentucky, he started a minister's retreat where they get encouragement, where they get some teaching and training, and so that's been fun. And I've also been involved with E2 Ministries, that's Effective Elders, and working with Gary Johnson and that team and doing some speaking and writing and, and various things like that. And I'm also doing some mentoring with uh, guys in ministry. We've spent a lot of time with the grandkids in different uh, forms and fashions. I have done a few home projects at this point in time that have been fun, but I got a lot more on the list uh, to get done. Uh, I'm actually due for a check ride uh, to keep my pilot's license up to speed and haven't gotten around to doing that yet. Haven't driven my old car as much as I thought I would, but we'll get there. There's plenty of time for that down the road. Our first official activity uh, before today uh, was being involved with the International Furniture Giveaway. And we had a wonderful two evenings meeting all these students from around the globe as they come in. That was a great time. That's easy, the people. Elsie and I love the people here. When we stepped away from ministry, I think the hardest thing for me has been the idea that you, know, you spend 40 years in a place, it's not only your job, it's your church family. And so when you step away from the job, that's one thing, most people still have their church family. When we stepped away in retirement, uh, or as I like to say, retooling uh, my life, it was the people that we left behind that we missed the most. You know, you don't invest your life for 40 years in a place without falling in love with the folks. And so we miss everybody here uh, desperately. It's, um, it's one of those things that just makes the retirement a little bit more difficult. Yeah, I told her, yeah, we can put this guy for that. I told, I told our production team that uh, they asked me, what, what, is your, what is your goal for when you know, Tom comes back to preach? And I said, my, my one goal, well, two. One is that he just feels our love and, and just encourage. Two, if we could make Tom snort laugh, that would be like fantastic, <laughs> fantastic. Uh, Tom's laughter and his joy, Tom, your laughter, your joy is contagious and we're grateful for you. I just wanna ask you, if, uh, if Tom baptized you would, you, would you stand right now? And just remain standing. If any of these apply to you, just remain standing. If Tom married you and your spouse, would you stand? 
If Tom preached the funeral for someone that you love and ministered to you during that difficult time, would you stand? If Tom spoke a word of encouragement to you at just the right time, whether it be in his office or through a sermon, and it just helped you in your faith and gave you exactly what you needed in that moment, would you stand? If you or your family has been blessed by Tom Ellsworth and Elsie Ellsworth and their ministry in any way, would you stand? Tom and Elsie, scripture tells us to give honor to those to whom it's due, and you are certainly due our honor. We welcome you back to the pulpit, Tom. Good morning, church. Oh, it is so good to see you. Thank you for that warm welcome back. Um, Elsie and I are, are thrilled to be with you this morning, and it's just, it's just wonderful for me to be able to stand here and look out and, and see f- partial faces uh, of those that I have known and loved for 40 years. Um, so let me, let me first of all say thank you to Sean for the invitation to come back and to, and to be a part of this and for his uh, gracious spirit in doing so. And then thank you to you for your support of our retirement ministry and what all has been going on in our lives. We are grateful beyond words. And let me say thank you face-to-face now for that wonderful family Disney trip that you gave us. Uh, we're still talking about it, still relishing in those wonderful memories we created with our family. So thank you for that. I, I can tell you, I know I speak for both Elsie and myself when I say that our greatest joy has been in spending more time with our family, especially our grandkids, being able to attend their activities, their games, their sporting events, which we would not have been able to do nearly as much if I had still been full-time involved, and so that's been a blessing. And I was reminded yesterday when we buried my 90-year-old mom just exactly how important family is. Family is everything, which is why. Being back with our Sherwood Oaks family is just so precious today. Thank you for welcoming welcoming us home. I want to talk a little bit about our understated God this morning. On April the 13th, 1970, Apollo 13 was 56 hours into its flight to the moon when the number two oxygen tank exploded and damaged the entire oxygen system, tank one, and the electrical system. The three-man crew was 200,000 miles above the earth and losing all that power and life-sustaining oxygen. I mean, it was terrible. All hope seemed lost. Apollo 13 commander Jim Lovell contacted mission control with his cool, calm, and now famous words, Houston, we have a problem. A problem? You talk about an understatement. It had to be one of the greatest understatements in NASA's history. What had become so routine with the Apollo missions was now a fight for survival. Between the engineers on the ground and that trio in the spacecraft that had been damaged, they cobbled together a plan that got that crew safely back to Earth. It is known as NASA's successful failure. And Jim Lovell still remains the captain of all NASA understatements. Del Tackett, 
in his latest worldview video series entitled Engagement, makes a keen observation, and his insight has continued to to plug my mind. He commented that the Bible is the most understated book ever. I never really thought of it that way. And the more I've studied, the more I've looked, he's right. Let me give you some examples of understatements in Scripture this morning. In Genesis 29, we read the story of the young Jacob who worked seven years to marry the beautiful Rachel. And the Bible says that those seven years seemed but a few days because of his love for her. So it comes to their wedding. And his soon-to-be father-in-law pulled the old switcheroo and married him to the oldest sister, Leah, under the cover of darkness and under a heavy veil. Verse 25 reads, but when Jacob woke up in the morning, it was Leah. Seriously? That's it? It was Leah. Worst honeymoon ever. What an understatement in Scripture. Following Jesus' 40-day fast in the wilderness, Matthew 4.2 says simply, he was hungry. (laughs) You think? I mean, come on. I would have used far more dramatic phrases to emphasize my painful but oh-so-spiritual fasting. Famished, ravenous, starving, could have eaten a horse. You can think of all kinds of things, but he was hungry. Matthew 10, 31 says, so don't don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Really? Given everything that God did for our salvation, that seems like a huge understatement. Guys, if your wife says, how much do you value me? And you say, well, you're worth more than a handful of sparrows. I'm telling you, that conversation is not going to end well. All right, don't go there. And what about John eleven thirty five, 35? Shortest verse in Scripture. Can you quote it? Jesus wept, yes. What an understatement. As he approached the tomb of Lazarus, his dear friend, our Lord's emotions stumble. There stood the resurrection and the life in tears, the God of the universe crying. Can any picture be more reassuring? Ken Geyer writes, he says, what an incredible Savior, weeping not just for us in our sin, but with us in our suffering. It is remarkable that our plight could have troubled his spirit, that our pain could have summoned his tears. See what I mean? And those are just a few, a handful of the many understatements in the Bible. So let me challenge you in your core 52 study, and I'm excited about that. As you consider the 52 biggies, look for the underwhelming statements in Scripture to see what you can learn from them. Now, if you have faith, these understatements can speak volumes. But unfortunately, in the minds of some, the understated simplicity of Scripture diminishes its significance and even leads people to doubt. You hear things like, well, how can such a simplistic book be God's revelation to this world? I simply don't believe it. Let me ask you, have you ever struggled with doubt? Do do you ever have questions that you can't seem to find an answer for? I think we would be less than honest if we said we didn't. I don't think there's anybody in this room that can honestly say, I've never had a doubt about this in my life. And disbelief, folks, is nothing new. 
It's been around since the serpent planted doubt in the mind of Eve when he posed the question. Did God really say that you should not eat of this tree? You shall not surely die. And right there, in the Garden of Eden, at the beginning of time, doubt took root and has been vining its way into the hearts and minds of humanity ever since. And those today who don't believe or who don't want to believe will level their charges of absurdity at those of us who do. And when somebody says to you, you don't really believe the Bible, do you? I mean, after all, everyone knows it's full of contradictions and myths. And then that person may refer to what they view as an inconsistency in Scripture. Let me give you an example of an inc- what appears to be on the surface as an inconsistency. 1 Samuel 17.50 says, David killed Goliath. 2 Samuel 21.19 says, Elhanan killed Goliath. So which one's right? I mean, they both can't be right, can they? When somebody does something to you like that, do you panic? Do you get real uncomfortable? Are you a bit embarrassed? What's your reaction? I mean, after all, most of us probably didn't realize that those two verses were in the Bible at all. And what if that person is right? What if the Bible is inconsistent and suddenly the doubts begin to creep in? Now, granted, there are tough passages in Scripture to explain or to understand. But I'm telling you, with a little bit of time and a little bit of effort and a little bit of study, most of them have reasonable explanations. Let me see if I can answer the Goliath inconsistency with this example. I read in a reliable, trustworthy document that Abraham Lincoln was killed by a member of the Shawnee tribe. And in the same source, it said that Abraham Lincoln was killed by John Wilkes Booth. So which one is right? I know what you're thinking. John Wilkes Booth was a Shawnee? No. (laughs) Two different Abraham Lincolns. The first Abraham Lincoln was the grandfather of the one you're most familiar with as the 16th president. So what, when you hear it, sounds like a gross inconsistency, has a very reasonable explanation. Are we to assume that there was only one person in history ever named Goliath? Is it possible that somebody was named after this giant of prosperity and power in the Philistine army? Could this also be a family member that came along later and was Goliath maybe a family name? I mean, if you ask how many Toms or Marys or Georges we might have here this morning, you'd find that there were several hands that would go up. You see, the first Goliath was killed by David young, early in his life. The second Goliath is killed late in David's life. There's no inconsistency here at all. But I get it. I get it, folks. When things contradict our logic or defy our five senses, we really struggle to believe. So let me see if I can demonstrate what I mean. If I told you this morning that I was going to use this broom to knock that pan out from under that cardboard tube and the egg on top and drop the egg into the water, how many of you would have doubts? Thanks a lot. You ready? Do you remember the story in Scripture of when Jesus walked on water? 
you know, he's coming to the, the disciples in the middle of the night, and, uh, and, and they see this, what they thought was a ghost coming. And when Peter realizes it's the Lord, Peter says, Lord, if it's really you, let me come to you. And Jesus said, come on. And Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water. When he took his eyes off the Lord, he began to sink in the waves. And Jesus reached out, took him by the hand, lifted him up, and I think put his arm around Peter and says, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And they walked back to the boat. Now, here's what I really wonder. Was that statement directed at Peter? Because Peter had faith enough to get out of the boat. Peter's the only other man that I ever know of that walked on the surface of the water. I think it may have been directed at the 11 cowards that were still inside the boat. What do you think? And what about Thomas? When you grow up with the name of Thomas, the word doubting is not far behind. John tells us about the day of Christ's resurrection. Uh, after that moment, they're in the upper room that night, but Thomas is not. All the rest of the disciples are. And so the Lord appears, and of course, they're overjoyed. And so they joyously report to Thomas that Jesus had risen from the grave, and Thomas said he just couldn't believe that. Now consider for a moment, folks, that he'd spent the last three years with these men. They were closer than a band of brothers. Men that Thomas said he would die with. He said that in John 11. And these men were convinced beyond all shadow of a doubt. Nevertheless, their sincere conviction and their testimony was not good enough to convince Thomas. He said he would not. He could not believe until he saw the prince in Jesus' hands and put his hand in the side where the spear went in. Who could blame him? Who, who could blame him? I mean... What would your response have been? True, Thomas was confused by his doubts, but he was also honest with his doubts. It defied all logic. It defied all understanding. It defied the five senses to the maximum. Who could come back from the grave like that? So let me ask you, are you honest with your doubts, with yourself and with the Lord? Are you honest with your questions? Now, I think we need to deal with a couple of misconceptions of our doubts. First misconception, doubt is the opposite of faith. That's not true. Doubt's not the opposite. Unbelief is the opposite of faith. In the Bible, unbelief is a willful refusal to accept the facts or a deliberate refusal to obey God. That's not doubt. Doubt is indecisiveness. It's finding yourself stuck between certainty and uncertainty. It means you've got questions about your faith or about God. As a matter of fact, you can have a strong faith and still have unsettling questions or theological concerns. Can I be a, question, a strong Christian without having all of my questions answered? Well, I sure hope so, because I have questions that remain unanswered. Here's a second misconception. Doubt is unforgivable. God doesn't condemn us when we raise spiritual questions. The next week, Thomas was in the upper room and Jesus returned. And this is how John records it. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side and stop, believe, stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Now notice that Thomas didn't get scolded by Jesus. The Lord did not condemn him for his doubts or his lack of faith. 
I think that's probably what we would have done. Shame on you, Thomas. You should have believed this from the beginning, but not Jesus. Because you see, doubt's not a sin. It's not unforgivable. Here's the third misconception. Doubt is always unhealthy. Oh, no, not at all. Doubt could actually produce positive results in our lives. When we're dealing with our doubts and questions and concerns and we genuinely seek God for an answer, I'm, I'm telling you, we most often come out on the other side stronger in our faith than weaker. So don't let the misconceptions of doubts do you in. All right, think I can do it? The egg in the glass? Let's see. Hold your breath. Sure, now you believe, yeah, yeah. Easy when you see it, isn't it? All right. Just because something defies our logic, just because something seems impossible according to our five senses, doesn't mean it's not true. I want you to come out on the other side this morning stronger in your faith, maybe able to deal with your doubts. So let me give you some reasons this morning why I believe so emphatically in our, the power of our God. And let me begin with another one of those scriptural understatements. When, the, when Genesis chapter 1 describes the fourth day in creation story, God is described as having created the sun, the moon uh, together. And one was for the day and one was for the night. And then verse 16 simply states, he also made the stars. It reads like an afterthought or an oh-by-the-way kind of a thought. Oh, he also made the stars. If you want a glimpse of our glorious God, check out the stars. During the summer after my freshman year at St. Louis Christian College, I spent a month in Mexico with a missionary family down there doing missionary internship. And it was in the higher elevations, very arid section of Mexico. There were no lights at night. And I would go out, I'd brave the scorpions in the dark to go out and look at the heavens. Never before and never since have I ever seen the sky ablaze like it was then. Oh, my goodness. What do you see when you look up into the heavens? Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Isaiah 40.26 says, Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all of these? He who brings out the starry hosts one by one and calls them each by name because of his great power and mighty strength. Not one of them is missing. Do you know the latest research of our Milky Way galaxy indicates that it would take a spacecraft traveling at the speed of light, 186,000 miles per second, 200,000 light years to cross from one side of our galaxy to the other. And one light year equals 6 trillion miles times 200,000. You do the math. I can't fathom a number like that. And our average size galaxy is only one of some, hundred, five, some 500 billion galaxies in the universe that we've identified and, and anticipated. Now, if you want 500 billion, you know, I have a hard time getting a grasp of that. If you want a, a, a picture, uh, if you had 500 $1 bills, chump change for our government, I realize, but if you had 500 billion 
one dollar bills, and you counted each dollar bill per second. One, two. Do you know how long it would take you to count 500 billion? It would take you 15,844 years. Each of those 500 billion galaxies has hundreds of billions of stars, and all of them made by our mighty God. What's more, the Bible says he knows every one of them by name. Wow. Let's go back to the egg for a minute. That was pure science, folks. Uh, That's gravity. Uh, The pan goes out quick enough, the egg hovers for just a second, and it drops into the glass of water. As a matter of fact, we got just a slow motion uh, picture of it here. Now watch. Did you see it for just a second hover there? And, and, And the point is that this is the law of gravity at work. Now regarding gravity, consider this. If we had a massive ruler that stretched from one side of the visible universe to the other side, and the ruler was marked off in one-inch segments like a regular ruler. If you move the force of gravity one inch to either side of where it is right now, it would increase the power of gravity by over one billion times, making life impossible. The scientists would state it like this. If the force of gravity were to change by just one part in 10,000 billion, 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 life would be impossible. And that's just the force of gravity. If the universe operates under such incredible precision, is it inconceivable to think that there is no grand designer who set the parameters? A couple years ago, we spotted a large owl gliding through our small woods behind the house in the daytime. Now, that's unusual because owls are equipped to feed at night. Unlike most birds, the owls silently wing their way through the air with velvety surface wings and comb-like serrations on the leading edge and the trailing edge of their wings. Owls are the original stealth fighters, seizing their prey without any warning. What's more, the silent flight characteristics enable the owl to hear better as it's gliding through the woods and more easily can locate its prey. By the way, owls' wings have been studied to the point that they have been used to inspire quieter fans in computers. But there's more about the owl. The stiff white feathers of the barn owl's heart-shaped face direct the sound toward its ears. And while most of us would prefer symmetrical ears... The barn owl's ears are are slightly different. On the left side, the ear is turned slightly upward and sits higher on its face. On the right side, the ear faces downward and sits a little lower on its face. And that combination helps the owl to be able to hear and judge not only the distance but the height of its prey. A barn owl can hear a mouse scurrying across the floor or on the surface of the forest 75 feet away. In contrast to the owl's heightened senses, (laughs) there's the hagfish. The hagfish has no eyes, teeth, or backbone. Its skin fits very loosely like a pair of pajamas. And when attacked, its only defense is slime. Between its head and its tail, the hagfish has 20 to 200 slime glands. And when threatened, it exudes a sticky mucus. But here's the thing. The hagfish will typically release a teaspoonful of gunk. But once it hits the water... In less than a half a second, that gunk expands to amount to fill a five-gallon bucket. It expands 10,000 
times. In July of 2017, a truckload of hagfish (laughs) destined for South Korea overturned on an Oregon highway, and here's the picture of the result. What a mess. But here's the mystery. The protein threads that give the slime cohesion are amazing. Each is one one-hundredth the width of a human hair, but can stretch four to six inches. And within the slime glands, each thread is coiled up like a ball of yarn in its own cell. And you say, well, what's that like? It's like this. It's like stuffing a strand of Christmas lights 3,281 feet long into a shoebox without any tangles. No one can determine how this happens in the hagfish. Science has been studying the hagfish, can't figure it out. But God knows because he's the one that designed it. There's just nothing quite like it. One more. With Christmas just around the corner, we're going to hear a lot about flying reindeer here before long. And uh, what I want you to know is that both the male and the female reindeer, or more appropriately called caribou, uh, are, are, are given antlers And they migrate farther than any other land mammal on the face of the planet, 3,000 miles annually. Here's the thing about the reindeer. They live up in the Arctic regions where the sunlight during the wintertime gets really, really slim. In the summertime, the iris of their eyes is golden. In the winter, it's blue. They can change their iris color. And you say, why blue? Because blue expands the side light. It lets the side light come in better so they can see. And the reindeer, their fur is hollow, which makes it like a life jacket when they have to ford flooded rivers. And they make clicking sounds, so when they're in the blizzard kinds of things, they can all stay together as a group and they won't lose their young. And their hooves are concaved, so that when they walk on the snow and fur-lined, it's like us wearing a snowshoe on snowpacks. And if the Arctic air, which is just bitter, went directly into their lungs, it would kill them instantly. But when the caribou breathe through their nose, their nose heats the air 150 degrees in a second before it touches their lungs, allowing them to live in such harsh climates. Incredible. From the majesty of snow-capped mountain peaks to the grace of a monarch butterfly, everything around me points to God. You know, God didn't have to create so much beauty around us. Just a couple weeks ago, Elsie and I had the opportunity to, to go down to the Smoky Mountains for three days. Never been there in the fall of the year. Oh, my goodness. What beauty we were surrounded by. It's because, you know, see, God could have made leaves to turn brown, just drop off a tree, and that'd be it. But he didn't. He gave each leaf its own color, which we don't see in the summer because of the chlorophyll. But in winter, they turn this brilliant color. It's like God splashes a palette's colors across his landscape. And even in a dying leaf, we are reminded of hope and beauty so that when we come to die, we know there's more to come. I I, I wouldn't agree with everything that Ralph Waldo Emerson said, but I would agree with this. All I have seen teaches me to trust the Creator for all I have not seen. Romans 1.20 says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. When I see the greatness of our God, I feel pretty small, and that's a good thing, because I'm reminded it's not about me. 
So don't spend your time worrying. The creator is still on his throne and he is in charge forever. If he provides for the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the flowers of the field and calls every star by name, he's going to care for us. God's glorious creation lifts our souls, fills our minds and hearts, and gives us strength for every new challenge that we face. So let the doubts be resolved. Believe, trust, and love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because in our moments of fear, doubt, and questioning, don't forget how the upper story with Thomas ended. Jesus expressed no disappointment in his disciple, but encouraged him to believe. And for Thomas, <laughs> like the egg, seeing was believing. And he responded with what I believe is the greatest confession, my Lord and my God. Aren't, aren't you glad Thomas' story and Peter's story are in Scripture? And these were Jesus' closest associates of the 12 men closest to him. There were doubts among them. What if the Bible didn't record stories of doubt and questioning? We would conclude that doubt is a sin, that it's wrong, and that we would be afraid of it and conclude that we aren't walking faithfully with the Savior. The story of Thomas ends with these words, and I want you, I want you to hear them clearly. John 20, 29. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. That's us. So why the understatements that we crave uh, when we crave so much more detail? It's because there is one central focus, one germane narrative that must never be overlooked. God keeps it simple so that we won't miss it. So let me close with what I think may be the most profound understatement in the Bible, Mark 15, 24, and they crucified him. Four words in the English, only three in the Greek. The most tragically glorious moment of history, God dying in our place. Three words. The sovereign master submitting to the will of subversive men. The creator of the world's forest nailed to a wooden cross. The lawgiver laying down his life for those of us who broke the law. The great shepherd becoming the lost and sacrificial lamb so that we might have life everlasting. Three simple words for the most significant, overwhelming, game-changing moment in all of history. No doubt the Bible is all about him. Life is all about him. So don't ever let your life be an understatement for Jesus Christ. Do you know him as Lord and Savior? Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are grateful for your scripture that teaches us the central truth that Jesus is all in all. And Lord, I thank you for this congregation, for these people that mean so much to Elsie and to me. And I pray that you will bless them, strengthen them, guide them, and direct them, the leadership, the staff, all in concern so that this church might be a faithful proclaimer of that truth for generations to come. Bless us, Lord, as we seek to serve you, King of kings, Lord of lords. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Thank you for watching this message from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. Did you know you can view any message from the past six years at socc.org messages? You can also view complete worship services from the past month at socc.tv.